Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It took four months for Idaho to record its first 10,000 COVID-19 cases. It took less than three weeks to record the second 10,000. And now the conversation around whether schools can safely reopen is intensifying. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, high school English teacher Sally Mitchell joins us to discuss preparations some teachers are making for the increasingly likely chance they'll have to start the semester online. Lane McAnally, president of the Idaho Education Association, shares concerns that educators have statewide. Finally, Blaine Eccles, Dean of Students and Vice Provost of Student Affairs for the University of Idaho, shares the university's strategies for opening the campus for in-person instruction. But first, all of these discussions about schools reopening are happening simultaneously with the rest of the community trying to get the spread of coronavirus under control. Earlier this week, Dr. Jim Souza, Chief Medical Officer for the St. Luke's Health System, gave the West Ada School Board an update on the stresses faced by hospitals in Southern Idaho. Our ICUs are straining. Uh, they've been operating at 110 to 130 percent of their usual volumes for the past three weeks. Do we have bed capacity? Yes. However, staffing is becoming a, a challenge. Um, we, we are actively seeking traveler critical care RNs to support our uh, staffing because our staff are also acquiring this uh, in the community. Uh, we are starting, unfortunately, to see pediatric intensive care unit cases now. These children are vulnerable kids. Um, I believe you all teach vulnerable kids. Uh, survival from this disease is not a chip shot. It's a heavy lift. Um, and recovery for those who do survive um, is measured in uh, weeks and months from the complications of surviving critical illness. Deaths are most definitely occurring, including in the healthy, and uh, we recently lost one of our teammates, Miss um, uh, Sam Hickey, a, a healthy 45-year-old nurse practitioner. ICU capacity and staffing issues aren't the only things hospitals are facing. At a Tuesday Legislative Judiciary and Rules Working Group meeting, Tony Lawson of the Idaho Hospital Association told lawmakers that hospitals are once again facing shortages of personal protective equipment and costs for supplies are rising. That legislative working group, by the way, is one of two that voted on Thursday to request a special session to deal with liability and education-related issues. The first proposal would protect businesses, public agencies, and medical providers who make good faith efforts to comply with COVID best practices and public health orders. The education working group has a longer list of issues to address, including transportation and budget flexibility. Two additional working groups may still submit their own requests for a special session to address election laws and budget needs. 
While lawmakers grapple with statewide issues, educators and families are dealing with the pandemic in a much more personal space, in their homes and classrooms. And while some districts in Idaho have no community spread and are ready for in-person instruction, most larger school districts are facing a lot more uncertainty. English teacher Sally Mitchell spoke to us about preparations she's making for her students and her own children. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us about the preparations you've had to take for this upcoming school year? Yeah, the main preparation has been preparing content that can be delivered online or in person, you know, easily adapted either way. And so um, at this point, we are aware that it's likely most school districts will be starting the year online. So I'm keeping that in mind and just creating content that's really um, simple and direct and consistent in terms of format. Uh, for students to follow. And I should add that in Boise, we use Google Classroom and that will be acro uh, across all subject areas. So um, moving forward with my planning, it's really nice to know that students will have that familiar, consistent format that they can count on. I'm, I'm curious about the quality of education. Is this as easy as just taking your normal lesson plan that you'd have in a regular school year and shifting it online? And if not, is it gonna be the same quality of education? That is a big concern because what happens is when you're online, you have to cut those community building things that you do in a classroom. Um, there's so much discussion that occurs among students and there's so much interaction between me and my students. You know, like I'm really kind of hyperactive as a teacher and I like to move around the room a lot and just engage with kids and encourage them to engage with each other. And it's such a different dynamic online. It's a lot harder to do that. So I find myself cutting out uh, so many activities that would work in a brick and mortar traditional setting um, because we just can't have that same format when we're online. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, a lot of the conversation this summer has been over preparations for in-person teaching, you know, social distancing and making sure kids wear masks and wash their hands. At what point, if and when you do transfer back to in-person teaching, do teachers have the additional responsibility of being mask police? That's tricky. I think uh, the biggest thing we need to worry about as teachers is implementing some simple routines for our students to follow and reminding them of those routines frequently and just sharing that responsibility widely um, that it's really not just on us as teachers, it's on um, everyone who's a part of the community. And also just keeping our sense of humor activated in throughout all of this and being flexible and recognizing that um, you know, we're all human beings and we have limitations and we're just going to do the best we can with this. I'm, I'm curious, you are also a mother and you have to balance the concerns for your students and your own children as well. So assuming that Boise does start the school year online, you know, teachers who are parents have to teach both of their, you know, both their children and their students. Uh, talk to me about that balance. The reality is, Melissa, that very few parents can actually supervise their students' learning. And so my big quandary right now is determining how can I set my own children up and my own students up for um, independent learning because we know that kids are in so many different places developmentally um, and circumstances vary so much. So I think really the job of all of the adults right now um, is to figure out how can we foster independent learning, what tools can we provide and what structures can we provide so that students can build their confidence and, um, you know, just kind of know day to day what it is they need to do 
to jump into that learning because that's going to be tricky. If Boise does start with in-person instruction, are you comfortable sending your own children to school in person? I am. Um, obviously, the pandemic just, I mean, there are so many things that we're worried about, but I really do have a, a great deal of confidence in, in my school district and um, in the plan they, they have in place. Um, my student or my, my children rather, they attend school really close to where I work. And um, so I feel as if they're always close by. I feel as if I can contact the school if I have any concerns. And I think that's a big part of it that teachers um, and students need to communicate really well with each other and just be patient with each other. You know, there are so many of us parents who, whether we're planning to start with online by choice or whether we're going to be forced in that situation because our school districts close, we're all concerned about how well we're going to be able to facilitate distance learning in our homes, especially those of us who work or are single parents. You as a teacher and a mom, do you have any advice for us? My big advice would be um, to give your child as much autonomy as you can. You want, the goal is intrinsic motivation. You want your child to be engaged and that is so hard to do. And one of the most important things is give your, your child some freedom to say, hey, I can set my own schedule for today. Um, or if I get my work, my math done, maybe I can do this fun break and play with Legos for half an hour, whatever. So I feel like involving your child in establishing that schedule will really help them to feel invested in their learning and, and recognize that they have some power over their circumstances. They don't have to just feel um, you know, frustrated. So I think, I think that the psychology of that is so important for, for parents to promote. Like you can do this and you get to make some choices. All right, well, hey, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely, thanks. Boise School District meets August 3rd to make a final decision on whether to begin the school year in person or online. Statewide, some district's boards like Nampa and Caldwell have already voted to either delay the start of school or start online, while others either haven't made the final decision or are going ahead with plans for in-person instruction. On Friday, I spoke to Lane McAnally, president of the Idaho Education Association, about how those discussions are going. Thank you so much for joining us. As the first day of school approaches, what are some of the universal concerns you're hearing from everybody throughout the state? So some universal concerns that I'm hearing from around the state is that educators want to be back in the building, but they want to make sure that it's safe. And so the concerns that I'm hearing is that they want to make sure that they're having uh, the proper face coverings, that they have sanitation stations, that um, the students are going to have those face coverings, and um, social distancing, making sure that we have smaller class sizes in order to, to socially distance our students so that we were able to educate safely. You know, but Idaho is such a diverse state. Are there differences in the concerns that you're hearing about either regionally or urban versus rural? You know, I am hearing um, some diverse challenges uh, when it comes to rural versus urban. Um, some of the more specific issues is out in our rural areas, if we have to go to a blended learning model or purely digital model, um, the concern of having the high-speed internet capability for their students to be able to log on to the devices that are provided um, 
because in those rural areas, some of our students, they still don't have access to that high-speed internet. Um, in the more urban areas, we're hearing about making sure that every student has a device, uh, making sure that we've provided those devices so that they can access the, the information that's available. Um, also out in the urban areas is making sure that we're staying in contact with our students, because like I said, with that uh, digital divide, the educators are gonna have to come up with really unique ways to continue to interact with the students. You know, how are discussions going in places like Magic Valley that have high levels of community spread and high infection rates, but no mask mandates? You know, our educators are concerned about that. Um, we want to we want to return to school safely when it is time, um, and doing so means that we need to have some kind of face covering. The CDC has come out and said that the face coverings do slow the spread of. Uh, the virus. And so working with our local health districts, working with our local school districts, because it's pushed down to local responsibility. And so our educators are reaching out to the local school districts and they're asking to implement the face coverings, even if the health department's saying not to. Um, and so working closely and collaboratively with our districts to to push them to do what is right and what, what we know will help slow that spread, the community spread of uh, the coronavirus. Have districts been receptive so far? You know, we have some districts that are receptive and we have other districts that we're continuing to work with. But what happens if things aren't up to your satisfaction? Are teachers willing to go on strike? You know, we can only take this day by day and Everyone's working so hard together right now, and I hope we continue down that path, but we are taking it day by day, and if things change, then we'll change our trajectory, but at this point, we're going to continue to work with the people that are willing to work with us. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You can watch my full interview with Lane McAnally on the Idaho Reports Facebook page. K-12 through instruction is one thing, but what about higher education? In Idaho, people ages 18 to 29 make up nearly one-third of the state's 20,000 known cases. And on campuses with dormitories and Greek housing, it's not always possible to socially distance. On Friday, I spoke to Blaine Eccles, Dean of Students and Vice President of Student Affairs for the University of Idaho, about UI's ambitious plans for on-campus learning and what happens if things go awry. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you start out by giving us a broad overview of the university's plan for reopening? Absolutely. Um, first of all, thank you so much for allowing me to be part of this conversation with you today. I really appreciate it. University of Idaho is really excited about providing an in-class, in-person experience for students this fall. Um, we understand that this is a challenging time for many uh, students as well as their families. Um, it's also a challenging time for our employees on campus, but we have been working diligently uh, through uh, spring semester and all through summer preparing for the fall. Um, we're doing a lot of things that we think are setting us in a place where we can be open and have a successful semester um, this fall for our students. Um, a couple things that I'll touch on briefly um, have to do with how we're going to deliver classroom instruction. Uh, first of all, we've reduced density in the classes by at least 50%. Um, so many of our classes will be online. Um, uh, but also many of our classes will be uh, high flex hybrid type uh, programs um, where some students will be in the class and other students will be out of the class. We've created social distancing in the classroom situation 
We're also requiring all individuals in any of our, our campus uh, facilities to wear face coverings, face masks, bandanas, buffs, uh, all of these things have been uh, reviewed uh, by public health officials uh, for our conversations uh, with our students. And we're, we're requiring it. We're not creating exceptions for what that looks like because we, we see that as important. We're also gonna have cleaning stations, hand sanitizers uh, in our facilities and in our classrooms uh, as well. That's one of the things. In our residence halls and our residential facilities, including Residence Life as well as our fraternity and sorority organizations, each area, uh, they've developed plans. We've reduced density in housing as well um, and created opportunities there for students to have a, uh, a live-in experience. We are doing some limitations though like we haven't done before. We're not allowing external guests to come into our facilities um, uh, moving forward in our residence halls. Uh, uh, for the time being anyway, at least until we can figure out what's going on. And in all public spaces in our residence halls, um, we're also gonna be requiring face coverings for our students. Outside students can actually walk around without a face covering on so long as they're six feet apart. Um, that's what we're asking and telling folks. And we've got a great va uh, healthy vandal education campaign uh, going on on campus. I think one of the other key components that we're doing is it is our plan to test all students before the start of classes. Um, we've invested heavily in our uh, ability to do that. We're working very closely here in Moscow uh, with uh, Gritman Medical Center to do testing of all students. Uh, we did a test run this week of our testing capabilities. Um, we had over 100 volunteers. I was one of them. President Green was another one uh, where we stood uh, in line, uh, checked in, got tested. Um, and we're I'm still waiting on those results. But uh, by doing our own testing, we'll be able to turn around the, the testing results time um, and, and uh, get information uh, back to folks. We've also identified a building on campus for uh, as an isolation unit, where if a student does come back positive that's living in one of our residential facilities, we can then relocate and isolate them um, by providing them support uh, so that we help mitigate the spread. And, and we're doing this all in conjunction with public health. We're actually doing training with staff members here on campus uh, to do uh, contact tracing in conjunction with public health. So we can also help identify other folks who may have been exposed and provide them assistance too. Those are just a few of the brief things that, that we're doing this fall. I wanna talk a little bit more about testing. So we're talking about roughly 9,000 students, give or take. That's equal to about half of the tests that Idaho processed as an entire state last week. You confirmed that you have the supplies and the capacity to pull this off. That is correct, we have. Um, we've had a group of folks working on this all summer long. We've actually purchased the machines to do testing. We have the swabs in place as well to do that. Um, and so, and we're, we're looking to have testing up and running starting next week. We're still waiting for the machines and, and I don't know what they're called. So <laughs> bear with me on that. I'm not the, the person that's gonna be running the, the mechanics of it. Um, but we are going to be doing the testing as early as next week once those machines get certified and verified through governmental regulations uh, and whatnot. And uh, once that, that, that happens, then we're gonna start doing testing for both our employees as well as our students. So what if something goes wrong? Because you said that you don't have the machines in place and certified right now. What happens if that part of the plan falls through? Well, uh, we, we are gonna continue working on, on doing testing. Right now, the, the testing, the test run that I did, we actually sent it out to a different laboratory to work with us uh, on that testing uh, aspect of it. But we've purchased more than one machine. We actually have a couple of them that we will be able to help process through this through. And working with uh, Gritman, we've created the opportunity that while we collect the swabs, we can hold on to those 
um, and then get them into the testing unit too. So um, we're very confident we'll be able to have this uh, testing capacity then. What about bottlenecks at the at the laboratories? That's something that we're hearing not just in Idaho but nationwide. That you can collect all the samples you want, but if they don't have the capacity to actually test them, then it doesn't matter. Are are you confident that you are going to be able to get the results in a timely enough way that contact tracing will actually matter? I am working with the team of, of scientists here on campus as well as medical. Uh, uh, folks from Grittman Medical Center, they've assured us that they are able to process these things through uh, in a quick time frame so that we can have the information back. So, so I am confident based on the information that I've been provided, absolutely. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about the students in the dormitories. Uh, if a resident tests positive, how many students are going to have to quarantine? Well, it really all depends. In working with public health, it's individuals that are in close personal contact with that individual. Um, and we start out with uh, contact tracing by talking with that uh, person of interest um, to identify who individuals they may have been in close personal contact with. So a student, for example, that lives in a residence hall and on the floor, the entire floor doesn't necessarily need to isolate or go into quarantine mode. It's really dependent upon what you, who you identify through that contact tracing. It could be their roommate that we also ask to self-isolate in quarantine, um, depending upon the level of interaction and uh, contact that they have there. Um, we will ask them to isolate if necessary, but we'll do that with the guidance of public health. Um, we've got a, a slew of folks, about 15 individuals that are being trained for that, in addition to the, the, the great work that our individuals at Public Health District 2 have been doing, as well as across the state, too. You know, talk to me about the, the building that you have set aside for quarantine, if necessary. That has a 75-person capacity, but I'm thinking yeah, about... Uh, you go ahead, oh, go I'm ahead. sorry. No, I'm sorry, I thought you, go ahead. Okay, I, I'm thinking about a worst case scenario. You know, let's say that there is an outbreak in Wallace, in that dormitory building. Um, we've seen in assisted living facilities that an outbreak can infect hundreds of people. You know, what happens if that building that's set aside for quarantine gets full? Sure, if, if that, I mean, in, in, in that particular scenario, then we would work just like we did in the spring semester where we would ask individuals to isolate and quarantine where they are. We have a protocol and system set up in place where students can stay in their room, we will bring food to them, we will remove their garbage for them, and we would uh, have them isolate in space if we do hit capacity. And what's the trigger for deciding that, you know, th there's too much virus spread on campus, we need to go online. At what point do you make that decision? Sure, we're, we're looking actually at a, a, a variety of different factors. We're looking at public health directives. We'll be work, we work very closely with public health, providing them the information we have with what's happening on campus, looking at community spread. We're looking at local ordinances, government ordinances, both state and federal. We're looking at um, doing testing within the community to see what kind of spread happens. In conversations with public health, they look at their concerns are, and, and it makes sense that when they can trace it back to a singular incident in an event in, in regards to what happens, those are the those are concerning, obviously, but it's the ones where we can't trace back where the spread is happening or coming from. Those are the areas. So that's another factor that we would be taking into consideration. We'll look at the number or the percentage of individuals on campus that may have contracted COVID-19 to help inform. So that's not any singular item or situation that would result in 
uh, a decision for the institution. We're taking it all in totality. President Green uh, loves information. He likes gathering all the data to help make an informed decision. And he said more than once, you know, if we have to make the tough, difficult decision to, to go online and remote, uh, he, he's, he will do that. Um, but he's confident, as well as I, that we have the ability to go forward and, and, and start the semester. It's going to take all of us, though. It's going to take our students, our faculty, our staff to engage in appropriate behavior, wearing our face coverings in buildings, maintaining social distancing, washing hands regularly, and not engaging in behavior that's going to put ourselves or others at risk. You know, before the pandemic, University of Idaho was already facing challenges with student growth and, and budgetary concerns. And now you have to convince prospective students that not only is it safe, but also the university can offer the same quality education with either a blended model or online learning. You know, is the university, how is the university preparing for this challenge with the budget? Absolutely, good, good question. First of all, I give nothing but credit and praise to our faculty members. They did an incredible 180 degree pivot in the spring semester in a very short time, transitioning their entire curriculum for the remainder of the semester, almost two months of education into an online environment over a period of two weeks, uh, if even that, from that aspect of it. And they did a phenomenal job. It was quite frankly, breathtaking and very inspiring to see. Since then, we've had more time to prepare for what that looks like. Our faculty understand the, the different challenges that are coming our way in regards to the potentiality of going online and remote. The majority of our classes are going to be high flex, so they'll be teaching in that environment already while they have some students in the class. They've been thinking about and preparing for what an environment in the fall semester can look like from an online. So we've had more time to prepare for that educational experience. But I will be absolutely honest in saying online and remote is ideal for some individuals, but many of our students would prefer to have an in-class, in-person, interactive experience. And quite frankly, a lot of our faculty would too. Um, having that relationship is a very special uh, engagement between faculty and students. It enriches the learning environment for many of our students. And being able to develop that rapport and relationship is really critical for the success of a learning environment. That can be established in an online environment, and our faculty have been very creative and innovative moving in that field and in that direction. But we've heard from many of our students that want to come back and engage uh, in learning uh, together. But we have to make sure we're doing it with a, the safety aspect of it and engaging in socially responsible ways, too. What are you hearing from other institutions, either Washington State just across the border or Idaho, uh, the other Idaho institutions? Sure. I, I'm in regular contact with my colleagues uh, across the state. I know many of my counterparts here on campus are too. We're in constant conversation. I'm part of a regular weekly phone call in with all institutions of higher education across state. I know the president talks with uh, uh, the, the other state leaders uh, on a regular weekly basis too about our different plans. They're all running into the same challenges, but also working on the same outcomes as we are. Um, we've all committed to providing an in-class learning experience for students here in Idaho. Uh, we know Idaho has a, a challenge with a go-on rate for going on from high school on to college, and we want to do everything we can to help facilitate our Idaho students uh, graduating to have a successful learning experience. Um, we, we talk on a regular basis. We share ideas. We share concepts. We share, share our, our innovative ways and approaches to engaging students so that they can be sex, successful both onboarding to the institution and through the fall semester. We're also in conversation with Washington State University, and you know, I, they made a very hard, difficult decision that was not well received by many individuals. It was also appreciated by many others. And this is the challenge that all institutions are facing right now. 
there's no roadmap here for how you create a successful learning environment that is gonna make everybody happy and, and pleased with the outcome. And so taking into consideration their challenges, they're in a different state, different government, uh, and, and uh, governor uh, regulations and stipulations apply to their situation that don't necessarily apply to ours. Um, time will tell we'll, and we'll see how uh, the outcome turns out for the university in the state of Idaho. But we're confident working with our sister institutions across the state that we can deliver on our educational experience for our students. All right. Hey, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate the opportunity and go Vandals. Thanks for watching and we'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.